Well, welcome. Welcome to Missio Day. Tonight we are continuing our series on the mystery of marriage. And I'm going to do something unprecedented tonight. I'm going to use notes. I hope that you'll forgive me. But we do have a new baby in our home and things are different. Tonight our series is called Friends with Benefits. And most of us know what the Urban Dictionary, how it defines friends with benefits, although I tried to get some chatter about it on Facebook this weekend, and it was lame. I guess no one wanted to admit that they knew what friends with benefits. I've had friends with benefits in my life, and right now I'm looking for some more. I'll explain that in a minute. Um, (laughs) So you know how the Urban Dictionary defines it. Tonight, I want to argue that all friends should be friends with benefits. If you've got a real friend, that friend naturally should give you some benefits, a lot of benefits, in fact. So here's a few quotes about friends. Oscar Wilde, he's a poet, playwright. He says, true friends stab you in the front. I like that. Another poet, Jim Morrison from The Doors. A friend is someone who gives you total freedom to be yourself. And I'm thinking to myself, well, which one is it? Is it a friend stabs you in the front? Or is it a friend lets you be yourself? Because I'm thinking if a friend stabs you in the front, it's because they're not letting you be yourself. What do you want in a friend? Do you want a friend who just lets you be yourself? Or do you want someone who stabs you in the front? Someone who you can trust? Someone who you can depend on? And someone who tells it like it is? Or do you just want a buddy to go to the game with? Do you want someone who will tell you like it is? Or do you just want someone who, who doesn't really care about your life? Um, one of my favorite people in the world, Rich Mullins, he said this about friends. What I look for in a friendship is someone who will beat you up. You get in this big fight, and then the winner rides the other guy home on the bike. I think that as we get older, we, we start to become a little more picky about how, how we use the word friend, who we will really call a friend. When we're young, we have all kinds of friends. But then as we get older, we realize that a true friend, a real friend, is a rare find. You may have 400 friends on Facebook, and all 400 of those friends may know what you ate for dinner because they saw a picture of it. Um, but do they really know you? And The question I'm wanting to know is, do they even really care about you? They might be more like a Jim Morrison kind of a friend, and they don't care what you eat, and they don't care what you tweet. They just just want to know that you like them, and you let them be themselves. But do you prefer to have a friend who sticks by you and who sticks it to you, if you know what I mean? So may I suggest tonight that I would like a friend who I could give permission to give the knife to and say, you can stick me where I need and when I need to be Sticked, if you know what I'm saying. What kind of friend do you want? Tonight, I'd like to suggest that your spouse was designed to be that kind of friend, your best friend. She's a real friend. He's a true friend, the kind of friend who has the knife and also the permission to stab you when you need to be stabbed. The title of tonight's message, as you can see behind me, is called Friends with Benefits. And so we have two points. I'll just have two points tonight. And the first point is, what is a friend? And the second point is, what are the benefits of friendship especially friendship with your wife. So let's first, let's dive in to friendship. What is friendship? I've been fascinated by studying this this week. Let's look at a definition of friendship. Here's what the Bible says about friendship. A friend, I'm just going to list a few verses from Proverbs. Um, you can do this. You can go to Proverbs, a lot of verses, a lot of, you know, just like Oscar Wilde and Jim Morrison. Um, Solomon had some things to say too. And here's what he says. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Or number two, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks 
closer than a brother. Now, just real quickly on these two verses, I think it becomes clear that perhaps a good definition of a friend is someone who sticks by you, someone who's there at all times and someone who sticks closer than a brother. I don't know about you, but I want a friend who sticks by me. A couple more. Faithful are the wounds of a friend and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Or number four, oil and perfume make the heart glad and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. So here I'm seeing that a friend is someone who wounds you, someone who gives you earnest counsel, who does that kind of work in your life. So my definition of friend is someone who sticks by you and someone who sticks it to you. Friends are friends with sticks, I guess you could say. This is what a friend is in my opinion. I wonder, do you have a friend like that? Do you have a friend who you would call a real friend, a true friend? Now, in my experience, most people can't answer yes to that question. I mean, honestly, I've, I've asked some of my quote-unquote friends, do you have a quote-unquote friend like that? And most people say, well, not right now, and it's been a while. That's kind of sad to me, I think. It's kind of sad that a lot of people don't have real friends. And, and incidentally, I think that's why um, here at Missio Day, we've put the word community right at the middle of our mission statement, Christ's community and culture, because we really want community, and we've recognized that people long for community. They want real, authentic, uncommon community where people know you and they're friends with you, and, and, and you can make friends. Kelly and I just had a baby, and we've had a lot of friends bring us food, and it's just been a blessing. We've just been so blessed by our new friends here at Missio Day. So a friend is someone who cares enough to stick by you at all times and to give you earnest counsel. It looks like to me that um, from these verses that a real friend, well, it takes, it's a lot of work. It's not just, hey, I like baseball. You like baseball? Cool, let's be friends. Hey, I like you know, the Lumineers. Do you like the Lumineers? Hey, let's listen to Lumineers together. A real friend takes work. It takes courage to stick it to them. It takes time and energy. And, and, and Proverbs says, earnest counsel. Here's another famous passage from Proverbs. We often see this when we talk about friends. It's, guys probably know this one. Iron sharpens iron. So, can you finish it, guys? Okay, cool. Yeah, so one man... <laughs> So one man sharpens another. Most guys, I think, have this memorized because we've been beat. You know, you need to have a man in your life who sharpens you like a man. But, but literally, <laughs> at least I did. I mean, I grew up in, you know, promise keeper generation. As iron sharpens iron, here's how the net Bible translates it. So friend sharpens friend. So it kind of changes the word man to friend, not to be inclusive, but just because I think it's more literal translation. In fact, if we look at the literal translation, Young's literal translation takes the Hebrew and just translates it as woodenly as possible. This is what it would sound like if you talked like Yoda. Iron by iron is sharpened, and a man sharpens the face of his friend. Hmm. The King James Version actually does a better job being more wooden and more literal. It says, iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. What does that even mean? Well, it means this. A real friend, a good friend, is like a, it's like a sword. A sword has a face and a handle, and, and, and two swords will sharpen each other, iron on iron, by their faces just scratching on each other. In the same way, a friend who's face-to-face, -face, who can look into their soul, who can look into their eyes. They scratch their faces up against each other, and they change one another. They change their face or their persona or their countenance, who they are. 
If you've got a real friend, that friend changes you, and you also change them. Can you see now why I'm saying all friends, real friends, are friends with benefits? We need friends like this in our life, although most of us say we don't. Now, if I wanted to play golf, I'm pretty confident I could text some people, I've done this, and get someone to play golf with me. If I wanted to get a beer, I can grab some buds, as the Budweiser commercial says. If I got extra tickets to the Cardinals game, I'm pretty sure one of y'all would come with me, right? I could find some friends. But to be honest, in my life, a real friend, a true friend, I can say probably I've had just under a few. <laughs> They're rare. So here's a question I want to ask for discussion. Do you agree with the statement I just made? That a true friend is rare. It's something that's hard to find, something that most people can't say they have. I've been disturbed by how many of my friends have said they don't have a friend. And if so, if you agree with me, why do you think that is? Why do you think it's so hard to have a real friend? And here's a question I don't know the answer to. Maybe you do. Is there any hope to change that? I mean, especially in the church, don't you think we should be like really good at being real and being vulnerable and carrying knives <laughs> and having real friends? So, so those are the questions. Do you agree that it's rare? Why do you think that's true? And do you know how that we could change that? Let's take three minutes. Okay, so, so um, now that we have kind of a decent definition of friendship, and I say kind of a decent because if I can be honest with you, I started writing and studying for this message, and I, wrote, I got distracted, and I wrote like five pages on the theology of friendship. I just, got, I just got excited about it, and I got dove into this thing and gleaned a lot of stuff from a lot of good, good, good information that I found out there. Um, then I started to practice the sermon, and I realized, I can't do this. We're supposed to be talking about marriage. It's a series on marriage. But then I started to realize, maybe we should do a little mini-series on the theology of friendship, because it's huge. I mean, God calls us his friends. Friendship is an important deal, and I think, because of what I studied this week, that the church has done sort of a poor job at glorifying friendship, that we've kind of de-glorified it. We've kind of made friendship the enemy, and we've treated, you know, discipleship and things like, and mentoring, those are cool, but friendship, that's, that's secondary. And I really do think that if you look theologically, it begins with friendship. The Trinity is a, fr I mean, okay, see, here I am preaching another sermon. Let me just back off. We've got a decent definition of friendship now, so let's, let's go back to our text. Our text that we've been operating from in this series is from Ephesians 5. The series is called The Mystery of Marriage, and in this text, Paul tells us that marriage is a mystery. So I'm going to read it. You guys have heard it enough. You might have memorized it, but we still should keep hearing it because there's some good stuff in here. Bear with me as I read about seven, chap seven verses. Not seven chapters. <laughs> <laughs> Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, which is his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit, should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, I'm going to unpack this exegetically next week, so if you're squirming in your seat, I want you to know next week, after we're done, I don't think you'll be squirming in your seat. I'm going to unpack this, and it's not, not as scary as it sounds. Um, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having, listen to this, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves him, his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but instead nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ 
does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so tonight, as I mentioned before, I want to convince you to make your spouse, to allow your spouse to be your friend, to be your true friend, your real friend, your compadre. So ask yourself this question, if you're married. Is my wife, is my husband, my friend? A good friend. Have, have you given him the knife? Have you allowed her to have permission to stick you when she needs to stick you? Does she have your permission? Last week we talked about one of the primary ways, we talked about fighting in and for your marriage. And so we, we mentioned one of the primary ways to, to, to get away from stupid and fruitless arguments is to, instead of fighting for the me, 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 I want mine, we always fight for the we. The, we're one. So let's fight for the we. It's, this is what's most important. Who cares about me? Who, 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 let's care about us, the we. Tonight, I want to take that a step further, and I want to say, not just do we care for the we, but while we're concerned for the we, and as we're concerned for the we, what if we looked beyond the we and then became concerned for the he or the she? What if we fought for the other person as much as we fought for the we? Another way of saying that would be, no longer are you going to care about me. Instead, you're going to first think about we, and then you're going to think about he or she to become the best he or she that he or she could be. Are you tracking? You hear what I'm saying? Almost could make a rap song out of that. So let's look at what Paul says. He says, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own body, but instead he nourishes and he cherishes and he takes care of his own body. So what I'm trying to say is instead of concerning for yourself, you look beyond yourself to the we, to this marriage, and you're one flesh. But then beyond that, you're concerned for her because she's your body. And no one ever didn't take care of their body, so take care of her. And as you take care of her, you take care of your body. And the reverse is also true. As she looks beyond the we and takes care of he, she's also taking care of herself. Wow. Can you imagine a marriage like that? would look different, I think. Now, when God presented um, Adam with a woman... The Bible says he gave, her a, he gave him a companion, a, a true friend. A, 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 we, we talked about it last week, a helpmate. But it could also be translated a companion. Um, and when, when he presented, when God presented Eve to Adam, Adam busted out in a song, a, uh, a soul song, actually, written by Etta James. Uh, it goes like this. At last I found a bone of my bones. And something like that <laughs> with clovers. Some, there's clovers somewhere, somewhere in there. He says, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of the man. So he's saying, look, at last I found someone who's just like me, someone who's my friend, someone who's my companion. In fact, last week we talked about Song of Solomon and the female um, speaker in that story echoes Adam almost exactly, and she says, this is now my lover and my friend. Tonight, I want to convince us that your wife, your spouse, should be your companion at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, my lover, and my friend. Just as a true friend sharpens another friend, just as the face sharpens that face, so your spouse is designed to sharpen you, and you to sharpen 
he or she. Another way of saying that is this. Marriage is a sacred sacrament. It's a holy institution. It's, we, we were in this relationship in order for each to sanctify or to make sacred the other. Marriage is a covenant between two friends, friends with benefits. Look at what, look what Keller says here. Essentially, all that poetry that Adam was singing is essentially this. At last, what? Love you? You're kidding me. I am you. We're the same. It's, this is going to be easy. Easy for me to love you. We're one flesh. Keller goes on. Marriage, by its very nature, has the power of truth. The power to show you the truth about who you are. And people are often appalled when they get sharp, far-reaching criticisms from their spouse. Who can say amen to that? I can. Amen. I hate it when she tells me how it is. They immediately begin to think they married the wrong person. (laughs) She doesn't get it. She doesn't get me. But you have to realize that it isn't ultimately your spouse who's exposing your sinfulness in your heart. It's marriage itself. It's this holy institution that is designed to make you sacred, to sanctify you. Now, for all of you scholars in the room, I need to say this. I know what you're thinking. If you've got your Bible open, like like Eric does, you might be thinking, you know, but you know what? This command to sanctify your spouse and to wash her and to make her holy is actually given to the husband, right? Not, Not the woman. So let me just say this. Paul's using the body metaphor. It's a metaphor that he's fond of using. And most of the time when he uses the body metaphor, he's talking about the church. So the church is a body It's Christ's body. We have hands, we have feet, and we have arms, and we have legs. And we work together as one body in unison to serve the body, to serve the church, and to serve the world as Christ serves the world. And so when Paul uses the body metaphor, he's saying this church is a circle of friends, if you will, that serves one another. And the hand isn't greater than the foot, and the foot isn't greater than the hand. We all work together to make all of us better and to glorify Christ in the world. In the same way, Paul is saying, the husband and the wife is a circle of friends or two friends who serve one another towards holiness, towards Christ. So it's not just the husband's job to wash and to sanctify the wife. It's the wife's job too. And by the way, she's his helpmate. She's his helper. She helps him become the man he is supposed to be, and he helps sanctify her and to wash her and to beautify her. It's interesting. Really, all you have to do is think about that for a minute. Most men that I know will tell you that they are where they are today because of their spouse, because of their wife. You often hear it said, behind every great man is a great cook. <laughs> I'm just kidding, a great woman. <laughs> Maybe you've heard this story. I heard this story a couple years ago about George Bush. I learned this week that this story actually gets told with different presidents. I just grew up in the Bush era, I guess, so I heard it with Bush. And for, I'm from Texas, so I get it a little bit more. George Bush and his wife, Laura, were dra- traveling on the highways of Texas. And they get to Midland. And when they get to Midland, they run out of gas. And so they get gas. And the gas station attendant is pumping their gas. And he's talking to Laura through the window. So finally she gets out. And she's talking to the gas station attendant. And George is getting a little irritated by it. And when she comes back in, he says, I can't do any George Bush impressions. So he says, who was that? Why were you talking to him? And she says, oh, that was one of my boyfriends from high school. And he says, can you imagine If you would have married him, you would have been married to a gas station attendant. And she said, George, don't be silly. If I would have married him, he'd be president of the United States. (laughs) We all know that our spouse is there. You get the picture, right? Is there to make us who we are, to, to, to improve us. 
Look at, look at this quote. Within the Christian vision for marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. I love this. If you're a Christian, here's what it means to be married, and here's what it means to fall in love. It means it's to look at another person and then get a glimpse of the person God is creating, and then to say, I see who God is making you, and it excites me. I want, to, I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in this journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I'm going to look at you, and I'm going to look at your magnificence, and I'm going to say, ah, I always knew you could be like this because I caught glimpses of it back on earth. But now just look at you. So we exist in this marriage to make our spouse the best man or the best woman they can be. Or as Keller says, the we're here to push them to their glory self, the self that God wants them to be. One more discussion question. And this one's going to be harder. This one's going to be you being real at the table, if you're willing to. If you're willing to take off the mask, be real. Here's a question. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your marriage as friendship with benefits? In other words, how have you been doing at pushing your spouse to her glory self? Or how has you been doing? <laughs> or how have you been doing letting your spouse push you to your glory self. Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard this, or maybe you've heard it before, but you just plain forgot. <laughs> You're supposed to be pushing your spouse to their glory self. On a scale of 1 to 10, how you been doing? Honestly, honestly. And then, what might you change in order to begin helping your spouse toward his or her glory self? Maybe this week I need to change some things because I forgot that I'm supposed to be pushing them to be the best that they can be. So let's take three minutes and be real. Now, if you're not married and you're in the room, then the question you should be asking yourself is, how am I going to be when it comes to this? See, this is why I said it's good that you hear these things now because, see, some of these guys in here are like, I didn't know what we're doing now. I thought maybe we were supposed to have babies. And then <laughs> and now, and now you're thinking, when we get married, I'm going to push you to become an angel or something like that. All right, let's just go. Well, at this point, I want to get a little practical. I want to just bring it, bring it home, bring it to your home. Uh, just a few things to applicationally to bring home. First of all, I need to say this. I can imagine some, someone sitting down right now thinking to themselves, I've got a list of things I'm going to tell my spouse. You know, I, yes, I want to push my spouse to their glory self. And so when we get home, no, wait, when we get to the car, I'm going to say X, Y, and Z. No, better yet, I know I'll make a list and I'll just give him the list and then say, this is where you need to go. Make yourself better. And I'm praying for you on that. Uh, don't do that. Don't. Just don't, don't make the list, okay? And don't tell your spouse how they can make themselves more closer to Jesus. Because I don't know if, you, if, you've, if you've experienced this before, that don't work, okay? Last thing I want my wife telling me is how I need to be better at being a spiritual leader in our home, you know? That doesn't make me want to be a better spiritual leader. It makes me want to defend myself and say, well, I'm you know? So as a friend... Someone who's face-to-face -face sharpening one another, you know them better than anyone else. So you know how to say it without saying it. Does that make sense? <laughs> the way I'm trying to communicate this is try to see your role in, in pushing them towards the glory self, less in telling them what they need to change, and more in serving them in that direction. Does that make sense? Like the church. The church is the, is the body of Christ, and, and Christ says, serve each other. The hand serves the foot, the foot serves the hand. We all serve together. And then in the end, we're all moving in the same direction towards our glory self. In your marriage, it's the same way. Just serve the heck out of your spouse, and you're moving together, and there's a glory self. You don't even have to say, I need you to pray more. Just pray more. 
You don't need to say, I need you to lose weight. Just go running or chase them somewhere. You know, then eventually <laughs> you don't have to say it. All right, so I got three, three um, things. Um, so, so think like this. How can I better serve my spouse so that he or she can better serve Jesus? That's, I think, our role when we're pushing them to the glory self, not telling them a thing or two. Because wounds hurt, and we need to be careful with that. So here's, here's three things I got. Number one, talk to your spouse. This is so easy. Do you know how many spouses don't talk? I think that what happens is we think, because we live together, and because we eat together, and because we sleep together, we don't need to talk, because I already know everything. I already know what you ate. I already know where you slept. And we think we've already, we already know everything about our spouse, and so it's boring. Isn't it boring? That's boring. There's no mystery in that. Can I just tell you that's not true? It's not true at all. You don't know everything about your spouse, and the only reason why there's no mystery is because you don't talk to your spouse, and so talk. Friends, talk. Talk. Let me just say it again. Talk. And talking is a two-way street. It means you need to talk. You need to let them know what you're thinking. You need to let them in, if you will. This is why I keep saying, I want to convince you to let them be your friend. Because in order for you to let them be your friend, you've got to let them in. You've got to let them inside. You've got to let them know what you're thinking. You've got to let them know what you're struggling with. Of course, they don't feel like your friend if you don't tell them who you are. You need to learn also to listen <laughs> and, to, and to hear what they're saying and then ask questions. Here's something that we all need to learn, I think. The art of asking good questions. My wife is phenomenal at this. Like when I get nervous and I don't know how to talk to people, she just asks them a question. So, how do you how do you like your new job? And then that person will talk for an hour. And my wife would just sit there and go, uh, uh, uh. I'm like, you're good at this. You don't have to talk, you just have to listen. I said, learn from you. What I typically do is get in a conversation to talk about myself all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I like to play this, I like to play golf, and I like the Lumineers. <laughs> you know, so, no, no one cares. <laughs> Learn the art of asking good questions like you did when you were dating. Remember when you were dating? You were like, hey, so if you had a million dollars, how would you spend it? That's a stupid question, but I sure like that you asked. Ask them what their dreams are. Here, here ask your husband this. What do you want to be remembered for after you die? You might be surprised of his answer. You might think you already know his answer, but you've been married for 10 years. It might have changed. Ask him. Husbands, ask your wife this. If you could change anything about our marriage, what would you change? Wow. You don't want to ask that question, do you? Maybe you know the answer already. That's why you're not asking it. You need to talk to your spouse. At C.S. Lewis, when he talks about the four loves, he talks about the erotic love and then the, the friendship love. Eros is the erotic love. Philos is the friendship love. He says, Eros will have naked bodies. But friendship will have naked personalities. You need to talk. You need to expose yourself. You need to be real with your spouse. Okay, number two, serve your spouse. This is a huge one. I think this is a huge one. After you start talking to them and you know what their dreams are and you know what their aspirations are and you know what their fears are, now you can serve them. Help them achieve those dreams. Help them achieve those aspirations. Help them overcome those fears. Help her. Help him. Let me give you just one. This is the application section of the message, so let me just give you an easy one, one you can take home with you tonight. I want all of you, each of you, to go home this week and ask your spouse this question. I want you to do it. This is your, your homework. What one thing can I do for you in the next few days that will ensure that you have an awesome week? 
In other words, give me one thing I can do for you. And don't say pay the bills and don't say take out the trash. I want it to be for you, not for the house, not for our bills, for you. What can I do for you? Just ask that question this week. Easy, simple question. Hopefully, she'll or he'll give you a simple answer. (laughs) My wife, I asked her this morning. She gave me a simple answer. She said, I just want you to let me go for a walk for 30 minutes every day this week because I just want to get out of the house and be alone and do some exercise and pray. And when she said that, I almost started crying. I'm like, shoot, I could do that. I want to do that. Go right now, baby. Go for four hours. I mean, if that's all you want, I got this. I thought she was going to say something like, I'm not even going to tell you what I thought she was going to say. It was real simple. This is easy, okay? Just go home, ask this question. It's a start. But, but here's what I want you to also remember. That's an easy one. Don't forget about those dreams and those aspirations and those fears. How can you serve your spouse to achieve her dreams? How can you serve your husband so that he can reach his goals and conquer his fears? For instance, my wife, um, she's an artist. She paints, she draws, she does pottery, she does all that art stuff. So as I'm trying to encourage her, I'm always thinking it has to do something with art, personally. I believe that God created us the way he created us intentionally for a reason. And so whatever pushing her to her glory self looks like, it has to do something with art, in my opinion. So a few Christmases ago, I built her an easel, and I bought some paints and some, some canvases. And I'm just trying to create space and create a place where she can kind of play in her gifts. Because I think that that's where her glory self is going to end up. So I'm trying to push her in that direction, encourage her in that direction. But did you notice what I did? Here's what I think most of us do. You hear me say, you need to push your spouse towards their glory self. And the first thing you think is, well, I need to make sure she has a quiet time. And a quiet time is a good thing. Maybe she does need a quiet time. Maybe he does need space and time to do his quiet time. But I think that's just too simple. I think it's too, anyone can push your spouse to do a quiet time. Pastor can do that. Bible study leader can do that. You're her husband. You know what she dreams about. Push her there. You know what he wants more than anything. Push him there. You know what he's afraid of. Help him to get over those fears. Don't be legalistic about it and say, oh, to be closer to Jesus, you need to pray more. Maybe being closer to Jesus means going on a walk or painting a painting or playing the guitar. My wife is always trying to talk me into playing the guitar more because I'm forgetting how to do it. It's been so while. It's been a while. All right, number three, speak into their soul. And this is a huge one. In, in the church, in, in Christian world, we have this lingo. You might have heard people talk like this. They say, oh, you know, he spoke into my life. Or I need someone to speak into my life. What do people mean when they talk like that? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what they mean. They mean that there are times when you're with someone and you say something, whether you intend to or not, they'll never forget it. And it changes the course of their life. I was a youth pastor for about 20 years, and I often have former teenagers tell me, you don't remember, but one time you said this, and it completely changed the course of my life. And honestly speaking, most of the time I don't remember. I'm like, I have no idea. Are you sure it was me? Yeah, well, I'll take credit for it as long as it's positive, you know, but I don't remember saying that. And you know what I mean, because people have done this to you. You have had people speak to you, and, what, and their words changed you. Sometimes it can be negative, Right? Sometimes people can say things to you and you just can't forget them. Maybe they said, you're lazy or you're, 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 you're stupid. You're ugly. You've, you've got no backbone. What ends up happening is 
those things echo in your heart for the rest of your life. You self-fulfill them. You find yourself being lazy and being wimpy and being ugly. Here's the amazing thing about marriage. Your spouse, I want you to hear this, has the power to erase all of that. This is true. Your spouse has the power to speak into your life and reprogram those words that are echoing in your heart. It's true. Let me give you an example. Let's say he, let's say he struggles with wimpiness. This is more, more common than you think, girls. Let's say, he, let's say he got bullied in high school and he's always felt kind of like a wimp and his dad always tried to man him up, right? His dad always tried to make him a man. I'm going to make a man out of you, boy. And all he heard was, I'm not man enough. So he's afraid. And he doesn't take those courageous steps. But then he gets married and his wife starts to brag about him. My husband is so strong. He, he's so courageous, he'll do anything. And, and he stands firm for his faith at work. He's like my knight in shining armor. He's my cowboy. And you know what he begins to do? He begins to believe it. And he begins to walk taller, and he begins to say, you know what, I am pretty smart. I'm a man. And all she had to do was say, baby, you're more manly than most of the men. You know, you got more man in your right finger than... She says something, and then it just wakes him up. It's true. You have the power to reprogram the self-talk that your spouse is often often self-talking. So do it. Speak into your spouse's life. Say, honey, you're beautiful, and you're smart, and, and you're the best whatever. You're the best mom I ever met. I wouldn't, I wouldn't give my kids to any other woman. You know, you're the best. <laughs> Girls, say to your husband, honey, you are a stud. That's really all you got to say. That's all they need to hear, right? You're a stud. I love you. You're a man. <laughs> That's all I need, baby. You're more man than I need. That's all you got to say to him. Now, I need to say this, though. The opposite is also true. This is powerful stuff. You have the ability to reprogram the insecurities of your spouse, which also means you have the ability to reprogram the securities of your spouse and make them insecure. So be careful what you say. You know, for instance, if, if every man in town tells my wife she's pretty, and they better not, I'll tell you that. But if they do, and I don't, who is she going to really believe? She's eventually going to think she's not pretty, as, as crazy as that sounds, I know. But she's eventually going to think, because my husband doesn't say I'm pretty, I'm not. It's the same with your kids, right? You speak into their life, they believe what you say. Your, their, their, their school, their coach could tell them amazing things, but if you tell them, you're lazy and you're not a man, I'm a man, I'm a man you up, they'll grow up with insecurities, and you know that. Can you imagine this kind of a marriage? A marriage where she finds pleasure in encouraging him in his gifts and pushing him to his glory self? And, 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 she, and he, he just is ambitious about making her the best version of her that he can. He wants, to, he wants to encourage her. Can you imagine what kind of marriage that would look like? Who doesn't want to have a marriage like that? Everyone does. So to conclude... I want to bring it back home to Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus for a second. Don't forget Jesus, right, Eric? Jesus is our ultimate friend with benefits. Can I get an amen? He's our ultimate friends with benefit. Why? Because he has found pleasure. 
in encouraging you to be the best you that you can be. He has made it his ambition to wash you and to make you wrinkle-free and blemish-free. He's made it his all-time ambition. Why? Because he loves you. And the Bible is explicitly clear about that. He loves you and is washing you and is even now pushing you to be glorified from one degree of glory to the next degree of glory. I want you to listen to what he says to his disciples. Listen to the words that he uses, because he uses them intentionally. I I know that he does, because he's God. Listen to how he talks about people who follow him. Those people who call themselves my disciples, this is how I feel about them. Listen to what he says. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you're my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you a servant. For the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit will abide. So, whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give it to you. Did you hear the way he talked? He, first of all, he says, you're my friend of the greatest kind, because I'll give my life for you. You're my friend. Why are you my friend? Well, because first, he talks to you. Remember I said, talk to your spouse. He talks to you. He tells you what's on his heart. He tells you what's on his mind. He says, look, you're my friend because, and not a servant because I've told you everything the Father told me. I'm communicating to you. We have conversations. You're my bud. You're my friend. I trust you as a friend, not just as a servant, because we talk. Also, he finds pleasure in encouraging you. I don't know if you caught this or not, but he said this, I chose you. Did you hear that? I wanted you. You you didn't choose me. I chose you. That means that I like you. It means that I think you're special. It means that you have value to me. I have chosen you. And not only that, but I am pushing you to be the best you you can be because I'm making it so that you are going to succeed. I know you're going to succeed. You're going to succeed. Whatever you do, whatever fruit you bear, it's going to abide. It's going to last. That's why I chose you. I love you. I'm encouraging you to be the best that you can be. And not only that, but I want to serve you. I'm going to serve you by doing this. Anything you ask of me, I want to make that happen. What do you need this week? (laughs) Tell me one thing I can do for you this week. I want to serve you. Jesus is our friend talks to us, he encourages us, and he loves us, and he serves us. So we're going to take communion, and we're going to remember that we approach the table as his friend. And I want you to, re- I want to close by saying this. Jesus is our ultimate friend with benefits. And incidentally, the Bible teaches us that your spouse is supposed to look just like that. Would you pray with me?